The Federation of Asian and Canadian Lawyers of BC, or FACL BC for short, is a diverse coalition of Asian legal professionals. As an organization, we promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. This is our podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to highlight the diverse and unique members of our community. My name is James Shu, and I'm excited to step in as a guest host for today's episode. As part of my role as one of the directors on Faculty BC's board of directors, I co-chair Faculty BC's membership committee, which produces this podcast. Our amazing podcast team has done a tremendous job so far, and if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I encourage you to do so. Our podcast team has kindly agreed to let me be guest host today, mostly to give themselves a well-earned break, but also so my parents can tell their friends that I was on a podcast. My guest today is Albert Klein. Albert is a disability lawyer partner at Semfiro Tamarkin LLP. He is called in Ontario, British Columbia, and Alberta, and runs what I'll call a multi-province or multi-jurisdictional practice out of his firm's Toronto, Vancouver, and Calgary offices. I was particularly excited when Albert expanded his practice to Vancouver because he also happens to be my older brother. We're both biracial lawyers that are related on our Chinese side. I believe HAPA is the technical legal term. So now apart from making our parents doubly proud that their sons are on a podcast, I invited Albert onto our show today because I think his journey to partnership is an important story to share for all the lawyers out there, myself included, who are currently questioning their careers in law. Welcome to the podcast, Albert, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be on uh, on the podcast today. Uh, fun opportunity to just get to bounce some ideas around with you and uh, generally catch up. So thanks for having me. Uh, I guess this is perhaps nepotism at its finest, but uh, I'm honored nonetheless. Yeah, y- you know, it's uh, my, my one hope is, you know, people tell us that we have very similar voices. And, and so hopefully maybe we'll have to identify each other ourselves when, when we're speaking. Um, <laughs> I think laughs as well. So, so, so I think to start off, you know, for those that may be unfamiliar with disability law, maybe you could provide a high level overview of your practice. Yeah, so essentially what I do is I... I deal with exclusively the plaintiff side. So anytime that someone has a long-term disability policy through work or short-term disability policy, and they apply for disability benefits to a number of different insurance companies, and they're subsequently denied, I step in and I sue the big, bad insurance company. And so that's essentially my role. I help them navigate the process, give them a bit of a voice. And then if it does actually uh, turn to litigation, I walk them through every step of the process. So that's kind of high level what I do. No, that That's perfect. I guess I want to rewind a number of years um, to maybe about five years ago. And when you're actually thinking about quitting law and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is that I think within my peer group and, and a number of lawyers, you know, are constantly questioning, you know, whether we want to have a future in law, you know, common themes include the hours, work-life balance or lack thereof the long road to partnership, you know, whether being a partner is something that's even the goal, um, you know, should we just go back and be doctors? Um, and, and, and so five years ago, you were thinking about quitting the law. You're now a partner at a firm. You know, that's a pretty serious 180. So would love to hear about what changed for you and how you went from almost quitting partner in a pretty short time. And so maybe to start off, you could set the stage of maybe rewind five years ago, kind of where were you at? What were you thinking? And what were you feeling? 
I think if we rewind back even further and uh, we kind of look at our upbringing, and of course, we were raised by the same two parents and uh, very much so our parents raised us to under this almost belief that if you weren't a doctor, you had to be a lawyer. So I almost felt like I didn't really have a choice. I, I, I say that kind of in jest, of course, our parents are very supportive and I know they're going to be listening to this. So we have to say that. Um, <laughs> and sorry to interject. This is, this is James here interjecting because of the voice thing. And, and you know, for the, for the listener's benefit, our sister is a doctor and our other brother works in the bank. So we really hit the stereotypes in terms of professionals here. Um, but back, back to you, Albert. Yeah, so I mean, I think it stems from even even further and just very, very high expectations. Uh, our, our grandfather always wanted to be a lawyer, ended up being a doctor, our dad's a doctor, and there's just a lot of pressure to be one of those two professions. Uh, and uh, so I kind of just stepped into it. I did my marketing degree at McGill. Subsequent to that, I was working at a restaurant and it wasn't something that I wanted to do long-term. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, our dad kind of suggested, why don't you apply to law school? So I just did it. And I show up and, and I wasn't really sure if it was for me. I've always kind of had a bit of an entrepreneurial flair. And I mean, I, I had known a bunch of my friends' parents who were lawyers and it seemed like there just wasn't really that sort of end in sight. Like there was no end where you were ever going to stop working kind of indefinitely. I remember uh, one of my uh, friend's parents who had actually pulled two all-nighters in one month and she might have been 50 or 60, which I just thought that's crazy to me. Crazy that at that age, you're still going to have to pull those long nights. And I mean, it, it, it's, I'm not averse to working hard, but that, that kind of notion of just no end in sight just didn't really appeal to me. And then of course you go into articling and everyone knows that's when you really get your butt kicked. And I remember I remember in articling, I was preparing for a trial and there was one, one month where I worked about 300 hours. Uh, there was a number of sleepless nights uh, and I just didn't know if, can I do this forever? And you never really know you never really know what it's like at other firms. And it's, it's kind of a weird scenario where you're almost placing all of, all of your expectations for the future on your one experience, your one articling experience, which is supposed to be so invariably hard. And I think that was, that was a bit of the difficulty for me. And I just didn't really know if it was ultimately something that I was prepared to do indefinitely. Of course, a lot of, a lot of, uh, just being happy as well as feeling like you're contributing, uh, that you're valued, that your opinions are valued, that you can help grow the firm or grow in terms of whatever you're doing. Um, I very much wanted that sense of autonomy because in the past I had done some entrepreneurial things and I wasn't sure that I could get that ultimately out of law, out of just working under someone else's, um, I guess, sort of business, so to speak. And so when I actually applied to the firm that I'm currently at, it's called Sam to Markin. I remember I had a very distinct conversation with my managing partner who I love, who's been just a phenomenal mentor to me uh, and has really followed through on a number of different promises and kind of right at the outset, uh, right when I started, I actually thought it was going to be a band-aid job. It was a much smaller firm. Uh, 
than it is now. I think we're now about 40 lawyers, four offices. And at that point, we actually only had the two offices, Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa, I think we had one or two lawyers. And we only had about eight or nine lawyers total. So much different composition than uh, where we are today. And I remember the uh, managing partner distinctly saying how much mentorship that he was going to give me and how really I would get the opportunity to essentially run my own business. And that's essentially what's happened. I've made a pretty quick progression. And I think they really afford us that opportunity, which is just not something that I saw in other firms, not to say that it wasn't there, but I just wasn't exposed to even the notion of that being a possibility. And I think, I think had I known that this sort of experience was possible, where I would get that mentorship, get, get that autonomy, get treated fairly, instantly I felt like I was valued and uh, my opinions were actually listened to, which is just huge, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's always, always a scary, scary feeling. I remember with some lawyers uh, when I was articling, uh, and, I, and, I, and I had a positive articling experience as well. I'm not trying to call anyone out or single anyone out, but there was definitely some lawyers that I was afraid to talk to. And that's never a fun experience, right? And you're thinking, is this going to be an indefinite thing? Is this going to be forever? And I think, I think now uh, a lot of the things that I was drawn to about this notion of entrepreneurship, I've realized that I can get in my current practice where I can take autonomy over what I do, what files I take on, how I actually manage my practice, how I market myself. Uh, I've, I've now had the opportunity to go on the radio and I think it's, it's kind of like relationships in a sense, right? Uh, it, it, it can sometimes be easy to romanticize, but you have to think what are the different kind of non-negotiables and think how you can get that in what you're doing. And so I think that was kind of a big important learning lesson for me. Uh, and as long as you have a supportive framework and supportive uh, firm uh, and people behind you, then hopefully you can get to a point where you can still achieve that same sort of happiness uh, that you're otherwise romanticizing uh, outside of law. And I mean, I mean, I know yourself, uh, you've been bouncing around a few jobs and essentially trying to get a sense of what exactly in terms of subject area or whatever that you want that you want to do. I mean, what, what, what do you think about all this? Yeah, no, I, I think no, first off, I think that's a really good answer and and I think there's a lot to unpack in there and and the takeaways if, if I'm hearing you correctly are upon reflection there's a number of or I guess a couple what you call non-negotiables in terms of the values and whether they're structural or or environmental that if you were going to stay in law um, and not just, and I'll, I hear this a lot these days, so I'm going to throw this in there, not just survive, but thrive um, in your practice and take ownership of your practice. Um, you know, there's a couple things there. And from what I'm, I think what I'm hearing you saying is autonomy um, and both in the sense that you have the support structure that allows you to grow and have autonomy over your practice, but still, you know, supporting you as you did that over through the various stages um, and, and even now as a partner, uh, I, I think a second one was, you know, having mentorship, um, and feeling valued, um, and also feeling like 
there's a means to the end or there's a purpose to what you're doing. And, and I think what you're saying about the hour is sometimes what I hear is, you know, it's a bit of a, a pie eating contest or a sausage eating hot dog eating contest where the prize is maybe more pie or, or more hot dogs, or in the case, or maybe you get a fancy Bavarian sausage, but it's still a variation of a hot dog. And so um, I think a lot of that rings true with me. And, and, and I think in terms of my own process right now, in terms of, thinking about my next steps, um, it's drilling down on what those non-negotiables are, are for me. Um, and, and I think a big part of, uh, of what I, what I've been thinking about it is, is, is exactly that. And so I don't have an answer quite for you yet on those, but stay tuned and, and, um, listeners can tune into my LinkedIn page over the next couple months to, to see how the story ends for me. Um, as I'm currently, you know, exploring my, my own next steps. So maybe I'll, I'll, a little self-serving here, but I'll expand this to the broader group and, and hopefully a number of listeners who this resonates with based on your experience, you know, what advice would you give to a number of lawyers who, what I'll say maybe are contemplating next, making a change in their current practice or what they're doing, um, for whatever reason, probably, you know, a number that I've mentioned, whether it's the hours, sense of fulfillment, sense of autonomy, um, I think which COVID has probably magnified for a whole bunch of people as we can, as we're, you know, forced to reflect a, a little bit more. Um, so, so advice, not just for me, but to all the younger brothers out there um, and older brothers and lawyers looking, looking for a bit of guidance. To all the younger brothers out there. Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's a number of things. I mean, it's, it's tough to say, but yeah, you, you really have to get a sense of what your non-negotiables are. Um, I, think, I think that's very important. And, and understanding that you're attributing the right feelings to the right scenario. I mean, is everything else in your, in your life happy or going well? And that might be a cause for more stress, right? And, and fully understanding. I mean, I mean, just to give an example, I have a, I have a friend right now who's quite upset uh, quite, quite upset and just generally unhappy. Uh, he's working a, a lot, but he's also getting into lots of fights with his girlfriends and he's attributing all of this to not wanting to live in Toronto. And got it. So uh, I'm going to jump in there. And, and I think I heard you say girlfriends plural and, and I, and that may be the, the root of the issue. If, if maybe one of the girlfriends has a view of monogamy, but, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll attribute that to maybe it, it's a little late and, and a slip of the tongue. And, um, but I, I take your point, um, that sometimes we're always looking to, you know, I don't want to say find a scapegoat scapegoat, but to attribute, if attribute our feelings to something in our life and, and work is a big player in our life. And sometimes it's easy to do that. Exactly. And I, I, I mean, I remember, I remember when I was romanticizing this idea of consulting and to, to be frank, I actually hadn't done all that much research into what a consultant actually did. I loved the idea of it. It sounded great working with these great companies, but when you actually drill down to the type of work that you're ultimately doing and comparing that to the, to a lawyer, uh, the structure for how you're working under people um, or working for companies, uh, the, the nature of the work or the skill sets required, the hours and the ultimate uh, demand from these jobs, it's actually not too dissimilar from law. 
So, I mean, that was, that was an important uh, learning point for me as well. Just making sure that you're not falling into that sort of grass is, grass is always greener mentality and actually understanding what, what it is that you want to go to and not taking for granted some of the things that you might have at, at your, at your current job. And I'm not discounting anyone's feelings. I mean, uh, usually, usually if you're in, if you are a little bit unhappy, that's, that's a sign that something, something ultimately needs to change somewhere. Right. And, and really it's really, it's just nailing down what exactly needs to change. Um, but I, but I think as well, it's good to, uh, good, good to be vocal. Um, and if there is something that's not ultimately working for you, think about the different ways in you, in which you can institute change. Um, I think it's also important to hold your, hold your firm accountable as well. And, uh, I mean, if there's something that's ultimately not working for you and you know that you're a valued member of the firm, uh, voice, voicing that because a lot of times the firm might not even know or, or the boss that you're working for. So I think, uh, all of those are, are things to keep in mind, but also just keeping in mind that there are other opportunities, right? And if, if you're not happy in one opportunity um, and you've given it a full try, you've uh, held your firm accountable and you're still unhappy after all of that. And uh, there are other opportunities. There are different lifestyles. There are uh, different ways in which you can manage your practice and just considering what are the different options, but which are still going to allow you to utilize all of that time that you spent in law school and actually developing your skills and not uh, just jumping to a different sort of profession where you're going to have to potentially start at square one. Um, and yeah, no, I think that that last point um, really hits home because I think coming out of law school, you almost see there's this almost this track of this prescribed track of, of, of what your career should look like and the exposure to the type of lawyers um, is quite limited. I think I, I think as each year of practice uh, and with even within my own network, the way that people practice law is dramatically different. And as people, I think like yourselves, sort of like yourself, start to own their practice and own their business, there is quite a bit of it seems there is quite a bit of flexibility into doing it different ways. And I think for a lot of young lawyers, when you look out and you see all these lawyers practicing around you in a way and you feel like you don't fit into that mold and you don't fit into that box. You say, maybe law is not for me. And I think I, what I hear you saying is, you know, literally think outside of the box because there are other boxes to fit into. And if not, you can maybe yeah. make your, make your own. Exactly. And I, I mean, I mean, there's tons of different ways, tons of different ways you can go. And I think part of the problem, especially as a young law student most of the marketing dollars is coming from one type of law that you can do, which is working in these big, big full service firms. And that's where a lot of the marketing dollars goes. Uh, they do a lot of the on-campus interviews and people don't even really turn their mind to some of the other opportunities, but there's tons of them. I mean, uh, e even some friends, I know it's, it, it can seem extremely daunting, but there's a lot of positives to it. Uh, I know have run their own practices and they've done very, very well at it. Actually, co comparably, uh, just if, even if we just look from a financial perspective, they're killing it. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a number of reasons for that. Maybe, maybe they have less overhead, uh, 
or they pay less in taxes or, or whatever we want to uh, ultimately uh, characterize it to. But, um, but I know a lot of friends who are very happy. And I have other friends who are happy in the full firm or big, big firm setting. And then maybe there's a bit of a hybrid approach when you go to a more of a boutique. And uh, I think as well, you can kind of get a sense from actually speaking to people uh, and or almost getting warmer leads uh, if you are going to speak to someone. So for example, uh, if someone knew you and asked me about the firm, I'm going to give a very, very candid uh, sense of how I feel about it, which is what you're getting today, actually. But uh, um, but whereas if, if you just blindly approach someone that you don't know, they're probably going to say the only good things about it and not give you any of the negatives. And it's important to get hear the other side to get a fulsome picture of kind of what are these other opportunities? I, I think that that's great advice. Um, and just, just, just talking with people. And I think one of the things that I found about the legal profession, and I'm sure you agree, is that every, if not every day, every week, I'm surprised how generous everyone is with their time within the bar to share and help each other. And if you have a question um, or you are curious, and if it, even if it's a friend of a friend, uh, I know I pick up those calls and, and I do so because everyone else picks up mine and, and you just pay it forward and, and be part of the community. So I think that that's um, totally spot on and, and that there's an environment that lends itself to, to doing that um, for us out there. It's actually amazing uh, now that you mention it. I mean, I remember in second year, of law school, I was looking for a position. I didn't actually get a position through the OCI process. And I remember I started with my girlfriend at the time's father's friend uh, who happened to be a lawyer. And all I, all I kept doing after I met with these people, so I met with him for a coffee and I asked him, hey, thank you very much for meeting with me. Is there anyone else that you think I would benefit from speaking with? And it started with him and he introduced me to two more people. And all of a sudden I developed this large network of people who were willing to meet with me for, for no reason other than someone had introduced them to me. They gave me half an hour of their time. Uh, often they bought me coffee, which was very generous of them, even though I insisted on buying it, but didn't really mind because I was a poor second year law student. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was actually quite, quite remarkable. A lot of them kept in touch uh, and I was looking for a job at the time and no one's going to, of course, do the job process for you. Uh, but what I ended up developing was this group of people who were passively looking for a job for me. Passively meaning that if a job came across their desk, they would think, hey, I met with that guy, Albert, and he was quite nice. Uh, and perhaps he would be a good fit for the job. And so what ended up happening was three people reached out to me saying that they actually had positions, which I couldn't believe. And uh, so there really is a value in just networking and meeting people. And a lot of these conversations, uh, nothing really comes of it. But I mean, in, term, in terms of advice and considering other opportunities, 
it worked for me in second year of law school and I think it would definitely work now. And to your point, people are so unbelievably altruistic. And I think probably because at some point someone helped them. And I know if someone contacts me, if anyone who's listening wants to contact me, I'm more than happy to have, have a coffee, coffee in non-COVID times. And, uh, and even during COVID times, I'm more than happy to hop on a FaceTime or a Zoom. So. Yeah, no, the, the, the offer stands and for, for me as well. And, and um, I think it is something that is, it really is quite special. And so, you know, I, I did want to change gears a little bit here um, and kind of dive into maybe what I'll call the build your own adventure career. Um, because I think that's maybe in a jokingly way to say it that way, um, is why you've managed to stay in law and enjoy it and build quite a fulfilling, I think, career out of it um, rather than leave. And so, you know, I, I think something that's unique about what you do is running a multi-jurisdictional practice, you know, in Ontario, in BC, in Alberta as well. I think this is probably a great example of someone who ran, runs a practice in a way that you wouldn't think of coming out of law school or even as a junior associate. Um, it also, to be totally frank, seems absolutely daunting. <laughs> you know, you have enough, enough challenges keeping up with, with the law in BC here. And so we would love to hear more about, you know, how you develop this practice and, and what it takes to run this practice. And so maybe, you know, we could start off, you know, what are the challenges and, and actually even before that, you know, you know, is, was it easier going, you know, going from one to two? And going to two to three, is it, is it a bit of an economy of scale and you've kind of figured it out by then? So maybe starting off, you know, what were your, what were the challenges going from one to two? Um, has that changed now operating in three, in three jurisdictions and, and, and we'll start there. And then I have a couple other questions. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, some of the biggest challenges are uh, getting used to time zones for one. Uh, so I, uh, I first started in Toronto Ontario, and then I switched back to Vancouver, BC, which is actually where I'm from. And just getting used to that three hour time change was surprisingly difficult. And, uh, but kind of more importantly, it's a confidence thing and just making sure, I mean, a lot of the laws are very, very similar. And a lot of the cases, especially if they're at higher courts, are still going to apply in both jurisdictions. By having that confidence that you actually feel like you have some sort of a command of the law and understanding of exactly the different nuances in your practice area, I think that's probably the toughest thing to uh, to get used to. And it's, it's a little bit easier. And I think if you don't have this in where you're currently working, that's probably one of the biggest pieces of advice that I could ever put forward is, uh, to the extent that you can find someone who's willing to be your mentor in your firm and cling to them. I mean, right, right, right. When I started, I was very lucky uh, that my managing partner was unbelievably generous with his time. I also had another kind of younger associate who was only a few years ahead of me uh, that I asked a lot of questions to. And that's so important, right? Just feeling like you can have someone to actually ask questions to. Uh, and 
a lot of it was kind of figuring out along, figuring it out along the way. Uh, but also I did know some lawyers in Vancouver that I could ultimately bounce ideas off of. And that was important. Um, there's another service. I don't know if there's one in Alberta, but there's a chat line, at least for plaintiff lawyers in both Ontario and BC. And it's just a online, online email chain that you can type any single question and a number of lawyers will just respond. And that's been a remarkable resource for uh, me to get some help when there isn't something that I actually know how to do, um, whether it's procedural, substantive. And uh, um, so one of them is called the On Ontario Trial Lawyers Association. And then there's the BC Trial Lawyers Association. So, I mean, just, just being, being okay asking for help, I think, I think is very huge. And uh, on those chat lines, even when someone doesn't know the answer, sometimes they've directed me to someone who incidentally has been very generous with their time. So, I mean, really, really a lot of getting through this, I think we're, we're developing a common theme here, but uh, ask people and if you don't ask, you won't get. And generally speaking, people are very generous with their time. They never ask for anything. You're always very thankful. And usually they're willing to pay it for it. And I know certainly I am. Um, no, I, I think that yeah, it's interesting that as, as we have gone through a number of topics here, as you say, that there's some common themes com coming through. And I think community and various communities, whether it's within a firm, um, you know, within a certain practice area, so the disability bar, for example, maybe even a broad, broader in terms of personal injury um, plaintiff side, um, obviously it, this podcast is FACL, and so that's a separate community um, that has inroads into all of those as well. And, and just the just the importance of community as being such a cornerstone of sustaining, you know, what I'll once again I'll, I'll say thriving in law rather than just surviving. Um, and maybe I'll take that surviving piece and and go another direction with it. Obviously, COVID has changed how everybody has been practicing, um, how everyone's been living, which I think in terms affects how they practice. Um, I imagine in some ways COVID has made your practice slightly easier um, in, in the sense that you're not traveling or do you find, you know, that not being able to be there, you know, especially with plaintiffs, um, you know, who've been injured um, often in long-term serious incidences, is that been a positive change on as a whole, you know, good and bad? In other words, I guess, how has COVID affected your practice? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's tough because at the end of the day, you're dealing with people. They're real people with real problems. And there's a certain element that you miss when you just meet over the phone or even meet over Zoom. And I think probably meeting over Zoom would actually be better a lot of the time because you get a little bit more of that human element and human interaction. But a lot, of, a lot of that is kind of missed and you really have to make sure that you're still being human, even though you're just a voice on the other, on the other end of the phone. And so I think that's just important to kind of keep in mind. And for example, a lot, of, a lot of the things that we do now through COVID like discoveries and mediations have all been done virtually. And whenever I'm in person. And I think it goes a long way just in terms of developing a bit of a reputation and developing relationships with opposing counsel or just essentially anyone on the other side, whether it's opposing counsel or their clients who you're just 
usually going to commonly run into, especially if you're dealing with institutional clients on a pretty regularized basis. And I, th I, think, I think when COVID is no longer a thing, I'm going to want to go back to in-person mediations just because there, you do miss out on a little bit of that opportunity to uh, crack a few jokes or kind of lighten the mood a little bit, which you otherwise don't get as much when you're just on Zoom because usually people sign on right as something's supposed to start and then it just starts. And so you really miss out on that opportunity. But I think otherwise, just from a logistics perspective, uh, definitely COVID or doing things virtually has made it easier for me. But that's just because a lot of a lot of time is otherwise spent traveling between jurisdictions, right? Traveling between Ontario and BC or Ontario and Alberta. And now I don't have to do that. But I don't want to do I don't want to do anything to the detriment of my client or my client feeling more comfortable, right? So I think it's really kind of incumbent on me to take those extra measures, especially during COVID, to make my client feel comfortable, to make my client feel like I'm not just a voice on the other end of the phone. Yeah, I can see the challenges there and especially for the type of work that you do. Um, there's a very real human element. Um, but but also, you know, being able to, to do what you can over Zoom and, and, and FaceTime or whatever may be um, probably, you know, your carbon footprint at the very least from flying over the country, um, you know, has decreased. And, and I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, as things shift back, you know, what um, what that looks like in terms of mediations and, and discoveries and, and just from a cost perspective um, as well. Um, I do, I am looking at the time here and I think we both could probably talk forever. Um, and as mentioned, if we don't say our names, people aren't probably won't even be sure who it is. And if you signed off, I could probably just talk to myself and people would think I was talking to you. I do want to say, really appreciate this. Um, you know, there's a lot of really valuable insights. I think that the takeaways, again, are, there's a lot of, I think, uncertainty in, in as we grow, and as we continue into our legal career, and understanding what those non negotiables are for us in terms of our own values of how we want to build our life and our practice within our life um, are pretty fundamental to success. And, you know, a key component of that is not being alone and being part of the community and both taking and giving back um, as much as you can and on the understanding that everybody else, you know, is doing the same and, and, it, and kind of a rising tide lifts all ships, so to, so to speak. To conclude, um, you know, I, I do have kind of one other serious question and, and a variation of this question was asked on, on, a, on a couple of the podcast episodes prior. Um, so if there are any fans who've been listening to all of them, there's probably a handful of them and I probably count twice. You know, the question, you know, it's a food question. And so previously it was, the question was pan fried dumplings or steamed dumplings. You know, I, I'm going to do a bit of a variation in, and ask fried rice or fried noodles? Wow, tough. I mean, we grew up on amazing fried rice from our Chinese grandfather. Uh, so I definitely, I definitely- I think, I, th I think that's a fair answer. I think grandpa's fried rice, rice tops all, and those are fighting, <laughs> those are fighting words. We'll take it to the grave and you can, you know, you have our bios, you can come at us if you, if you think otherwise. 
Um, but 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 a but a really good show, man. I mean, tough to tough to beat that too. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the spirit of things, that's why we have sharing dishes. So maybe maybe we'll get both. Well, thank you again, um, and thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you for tuning into the Faculty BC podcast. Visit our website at facultybc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at facultybc. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultybc.ca.